Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. People are really cautious about what they say about books. It's like gangsterism, but for clothes. Iconic, prestigious, classic. Words which are synonymous with the world-renowned magazine Vogue. It's a fashion world giant, so closely integrated with the industry that it isn't just peering behind the scenes. It's setting the trends, influencing styles, moulding the stories that it covers. It's an example of how important magazines have been culturally throughout the years and how even in the age of digital that remains true. Vogue also represents the power a creative institution can wield. How by perfectly defining your brand and user experience, you can evolve into a formidable force to be reckoned with. My guest today is Nina Sophia Morales, the editor of Lifestyle magazine, Londoner. I had the pleasure of helping Nina Sophia when she was in the initial stages of putting together her brand new book, Glossy, The Inside Story of Vogue. It charts the history of the magazine and has just been released to the world. Chapter 1. The Devil Wears Prada What do you think of when you picture the fashion magazine industry? If you've suddenly just been filled with an overwhelming sense of dread, that'll probably be the work of Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. In her role as Miranda Priestley, she embodied the ruthlessness of fashion journalism. The character, of course, was cast in the image of US Vogue editor Anna Wintour, and though it may be fiction... There's plenty of truth in that depiction, and it's painted a lasting impression in our minds. Game of Thrones fans may be familiar with a collectible t-shirt that bears the slogan, Wintour is coming. But let me take you back before the time of Anna Wintour, before Vogue was the institution it is now, when perhaps it held a little less prestige. It was a New York gossip mag, and they said some really outrageous things. In the first ever issue of Vogue, they described the Prince of Wales and how the whites of his eyes weren't white and his hands were swollen and how sick looking he was and unhappy. So they did this whole thing about him and actually he'd already died. So right. <laughs> they, did, they had a firm line of making things up. <laughs> wow. Tell us, how did this thing come about? You, you don't just wake up one day and decide to write a history of Vogue magazine. This isn't this is a literary beer moth. This is a huge institution. How did the idea come to you? Slowly. It, it came to me in increments. I was researching something else about fashion history, and Anna Winter is obviously everywhere, and you just feel her presence in fashion, I think, no matter what you're doing. And um, I kind of got sick of it in researching this piece, and I thought, why don't I know any of the other editors? I mean, Vogue has been around for so long. Maybe it also came to me with that exhibition from the National Portrait Gallery did, 100 Years of Vogue, and I was thinking, well, who, you know, she hasn't been alive for 100 plus years. <laughs> who else has been there? And I was kind of thinking it would be some dowdy, frumpy old ladies. But the editors of Vogue, every single one of them is as interesting, as vibrant, as scary, <laughs> as influential as Anna Winter. Um, and I sort of fell in love with them all. And you set out to tell a story of Vogue, its influence on society, which has, you know, changed considerably. It acts as a bellwether for 
the mood of the nation or the mood of the world, particularly, you know, coming out of things like the, the Great Depression and into the or, or going into the Great Depression, but certainly in, in the 20s during wartime, it has acted as a, as a bellwether. Did you find anything out that completely shocked you that you weren't expecting to uncover? Yeah, definitely. I think what I wasn't expecting to uncover was like the theme of survival. Vogue is a bit like a phoenix. It constantly goes down in flames and it constantly comes back up. I really wasn't expecting how much they did in the war, for example. Um, and I think it's largely down to the fact that somehow Condé Nast has always been able to hire the most perfect guardian for Vogue. And these people will go through hell and high water for Vogue. So for example, in the Second World War, you know, um, the editor was working as bombs were blowing up the building to finish an issue. There was a business manager who went into a fire to take out some records, then moved them to his house and set up like a rudimentary Vogue office from his basement <laughs> um, to keep it going. And he also used to take boxes of Vogue and drive them around the country manually doing like, you know, I think over 100 miles a weekend to sell in person issues of Vogue to news agents. The kind of dedication that we would not only never expect, but is basically unheard of. You're putting your life at risk to do your job. And people do that, of course, but not for fashion, you would think. <laughs> They're not firefighters. They're not policemen. It's extraordinary. the The magazine I was researching is now in its one hundred and twenty eighth year, something like that. It's sold in twenty plus countries. It 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 didn't start obviously that way. It's it started very small. Am I right in thinking that the British edition was the first international edition outside of the US? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and since then, it's become. Well, it's everywhere. It's on every newsstand. It's in every news agents. It, it's just astonishing. It's an absolute icon. Was that intimidating for you to approach something that well known? Um, it was not so much the fact that it was well known. The fact that it was well known kind of um, geared me up a bit because I thought, great, people want to read about this. <laughs> but the fact that it is so vast, that was tricky because you sort of think, how am I going to be able to represent something so big that has so many different branches to it? Because now it's not just a magazine, it's online, it has an entertainment channel, it, you know, all the digital versions um, in so many countries. And you think, am I going to be able to get that across? And so I think one of the key things is definitely keeping it to not trying to represent all the editions, because as you say, 20 plus countries, I think it might have been a little bit uh, foolhardy and difficult to research if I tried to mention them all. So it kind of, the book is mainly about the American one, which was the first, the London one, which was, as you say, the first international edition, and Vogue Paris, which is important because Paris is where fashion lives. On the surface, uh, Nina, it sounds like a relatively easy sell, but I know from conversations that you and I have had in the past that that wasn't the case. How much did you have to change your approach in getting this book to market? Quite a bit. I've definitely learned a lot about the publishing industry because I did not expect, I thought, you know, as I just said, Vogue, great, people are going to want to read about that. I didn't think Vogue, great, 
people might want to sue me for that. <laughs> so, and um, as it turns out, uh, what I learn is that people are really scared of it, not just people being interviewed who are either desperate to be anonymous or really don't want to talk to you, but equally on the other side, people are really cautious about what they say about book. And there's something really fascinating about that. Why are they so serious? Why do they have that aura? It's like gangsterism, but for clothes and photos of clothes. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is. It's a really interesting world. But I, I guess that shows the power that a single institution like a magazine, which you, you might, you might, you know, on the surface of it, think that actually that's ridiculous that a magazine has any power whatsoever. Surely it's it's just a magazine, but it's not. It, it represents a huge industry. It has a massive following and a massive undertaking that I'm guessing will pull together if threatened. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it it's really really serious about how it looks to the outside world. I mean. Vogue is privately owned uh, and it's owned by a family who has, you know, one of the biggest private fortunes in the world. Uh, and obviously, these are people who don't want to forfeit their money. And you kind of don't think about it like that. You think, oh, it's creative, it's fashion, it's design. But it, it's not. It's about cash for people whose faces we don't know. <laughs> um, and, and those people don't, don't want to give, give that up. Um, understandably in many ways. Um, I remember uh, one of the people I interviewed was the editor-in-chief of this kind of uh, indie academic fashion magazine called Vestage and uh, she published an interview with someone who'd been fired from Vogue talking about how they'd been fired and she said you know it was really frightening because she's been in the industry for decades, she runs this little magazine, she went to bed, she woke up the next morning, she had tons of super aggressive emails from Condé Nast lawyers and she was like it was scary and it was upsetting because it was like David and Goliath and she was like why are they bothering to come at me with a ton of bricks when I'm the small guy but it matters because it's how they look to the outside world and you know they just don't want people to say to speak freely essentially. How did you go about structuring the book is it sequential in terms of the editors in the order that they became editors of the magazine or have you done it thematically? I initially wanted to do it thematically, but then it became quite confusing because there's so many, you know, people involved and it covers such a broad time period and several different countries that it just made sense in the end to do it. It's almost decade by decade, really, like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And I think that kind of helps because we all have an idea of what those decades meant in fashion already. So that sort of grounds the narrative, I think. To what extent does the magazine lead the industry as opposed to it commenting on the industry I, I get the sense that it, it sets the tone for the direction the industry is going is that fair I think that is fair yeah I think initially because fashion magazines have a very specific role which is kind of to promote and glorify fashion um, but actually very early on from the 20s Vogue realized that to kind of be an insider to get you know, more access to be more important, that they would need to be a bigger part of the fashion industry. So they are very involved with trade bodies, or they they would have been. So yeah, and like sector watchdogs protecting like copyrights of designers, things like that. So quite serious stuff. And now, I mean, at this point, 
it's like a lot of people say that Anna Winter is directly involved with political aspects, trade tariffs on textiles, you know. So I think it goes a lot further than just, here's a designer we like, we're promoting him this month. It goes kind of to the foundation of production and, yeah, access to fashion as as we know it, what people buy, how they buy it, and how things are made, I think is actually more governed by Vogue than anybody realises. When I was researching the magazine, uh, there were a few things that I was surprised by. I was surprised to learn that it was in the 1930s that they put a bisexual and biracial model on the cover. There is a very rich history of breaking ground and doing things earlier than you might have expected. In more recent years, I am aware of the edition that Meghan Markle um, helped to edit, and she picked a selection of women of colour that had inspired her and that she wanted to talk about. It's a very brave publication, isn't it? Uh, yeah, historically, it's it's been incredible. And I think that's something that now, having done all this research, almost not annoys me, but I kind of want to get the story out there because people talk about Edward Enifel as being the really groundbreaking first editor who's thought about diversity and inclusivity and wants to tackle racism, but it's completely not true. There have been... I lose count of how many editors who wanted to tackle these issues. The big difference is that the audience is finally ready to hear it now. We want to see that stuff. Whereas back then, advertisers would pull ads, people would unsubscribe, and the editors would get fired. I can think of three editors off the top of my head who got fired from Vogue Paris, one in the mid-90s, for trying to put black people on the cover. And they, you know, and they were willing to lose their jobs and that you know impact their careers over what they believed in um which i think was really brave and they're kind of the unsung heroes and edward enifel has kind of taken on a narrative that is and a role as like hero at vogue which is not really very fair because there have been countless countless editors who have done something similar even in the 20s the first british editor um she was part of the bloomsbury circle she was really keen really insistent to put news and kind of more thoughtful content into the literary stuff, stuff about arts, architecture, interiors, anything that was kind of to educate women. And she used to say that Vogue has to be about a trends in thought as well as trends in fashion. And she got into a lot of trouble for it. But, you know, in the 1920s, there was nothing for women to read where they would have any idea about the outside world. Newspapers were written for men. Subscriptions were given to men. Women were, like, completely in the dark. So it was almost more important back then. And all of these people have been forgotten. But, they, yeah, you're right. It's a very brave, brave publication. We've talked about the, the war. Do you think there are things in the book that would that would really surprise people to know about Vogue? Because I say we have this notion that it is, you know, the book is called Glossy, that it is just a glossy ma magazine. Do you think there are things in it that, pe that people will, when they read it, will have absolutely no idea that that either went on or that Vogue had any part to play in that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we talked about before, for sure, how groundbreaking it was and the sort of things the editors were doing, there were some really juicy things going on as well. I mean, in the 1920s, I describe it as a sexual subculture because everybody involved with Vogue was part of like, you know, either some 
like polygamous or fetish world, which is really surprising. And when they weren't that, they were serious drug addicts. So like Oscar Wilde's niece, who was having an affair with this woman in New York and was also a heroin user, was a Vogue. You know, so it's like the kind of characters are very surprising. You wouldn't expect to have been part of it that early on. But definitely, yeah, there's a lot that's surprising. So again, to go back to the war, um, they Vogue worked with the government in putting out messages for women during the war um, with the Ministry of Information. So that's a pretty huge role that probably not a lot of people know about. So almost using the magazine as as a source of propaganda or information or a call to action for, for women to help the war effort? Yeah, so the Ministry of Information would have various things that would come up um, that they wanted to put across to women. And because they felt that Vogue was you know, so influential um, to women, they used it as a kind of mouthpiece. So they would call in the editor and be like, okay, this week, uh, for example, we've had loads of scalping incidents <laughs> because women are now operating heavy machinery, but the fashionable hairstyle is shoulder length hair. Can we convince women to cut their hair shorter so they stop getting scalped? <laughs> Wow. Um, kind of, you know, and you think of it as like such a minor thing, like convincing women to get short hair, but it was actually really important and it, it really kind of a matter of public safety. And Vogue was the only one that could do it by running these, you know, uh, features on like fashionable bobbed hair and, you know, changing the trends. I, I love that story because I think it seems so trivial but was obviously important enough for the government to step in. Chapter two, the future of Vogue. We've had more than 100 years of Vogue, and throughout that time, its reputation has been built into something beyond comprehension. But we no longer live in a world even remotely similar to the 1890s. Creators can start magazines from the comfort of their own living rooms. The things we care about and find value in are changing So how does that affect the reverence we feel when we hear a title like Vogue? As magazine titans try to keep pace with the world, competing against leagues of new and upcoming publications, where does Vogue fit into the picture? What does the next 50 years hold? So there's what Vogue is doing now, and there's what I wish Vogue was doing, (laughs) Um, which is quite different. So I think what Vogue is doing now is investing really heavily in digital stuff and you know, they got a new CEO whose background is in tech, not publishing. They keep hiring, you know, influencers and things like that for very serious positions. In fact, last month, they made, you know, a blogger, the editor in chief of Vogue China, and she's 27. And that's, you know, one of the biggest roles in fashion, really. And she has no magazine experience. So those kinds of moves suggest that they're really focused on uh, on an online presence which I think is a shame and I don't really think will put them in a place of authority it may pay off but I don't think it will do good by their brand as it were because mass markets it's just kind of chasing the consumer as opposed to being the leader themselves so they just kind of give people what they want five ways to wear a white t-shirt, his uh, Instagram clip of this celebrity. We can get that in a lot of places. And that kind of really beautiful, eccentric, 
creative product that they used to do by getting the top talent in photography and styling and so on is less and less. And I think that would have been where they should have differentiated themselves and could have continued to stand out, but they're not really going for that. I think instead of, for example, cancelling or doing less magazines, I think they should concentrate on the magazines because that's what makes them special, right? We can all go online. I can go online right now and start a blog and do exactly the same thing that Vogue is doing. The fact that they have access to celebrities means nothing because we all have access to celebrities on social media. But what we can't do, what you and me couldn't do right now from our homes is pull together like, you know, the most beautiful fashion shoot in the world. Some of those pictures like Abenden and Irving Penn and all of those things, Horse, David Bailey, we we couldn't do that in our own homes. Um, And that would have, I think, been the thing that would really set them apart and that they're doing less and less of and they're not really interested in pursuing. I I agree. And I think there is a connection that we have with a physical object, you know, the ability to touch it, to hold it in your hands, to smell it, to turn the pages, to hear the crinkle of the paper, to just to run your hand over the gloss. You know, you can feel the money, can't you? You can feel, you know, the history and the institution. And I'm not I'm not being twee here. I I genuinely do believe that You, you there's something about the lack of heft physical heft that a digital package has or doesn't have um, that I I think you miss. Now, I know when you did the special print version of Londoner magazine, you you went through that process, you know, yourself. So you know how hard it is to do. But that really brought the magazine to life, didn't it? When you could actually hold it in your hands. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's interesting because when I started Londoner, People were kind of really snooty about, well, is it a magazine if it's just online? Now, obviously, just a few years later, nobody would dream of saying that, you know, you set up a website and half an hour, boom, magazine. And everybody believes that, you know. So obviously, there are a lot of discussions about what makes a publication a publication and how. But authority definitely comes from history, legacy, which Vogue has, but also from presence. And a physical product is a much greater presence. They're about luxury. And if having a printed product that costs a lot of money (laughs) in front of you and the time to read it isn't a luxury, then I don't know what is. We don't have, you know, before people used to read magazines because there was nothing else. But now to sit and read a magazine is a kind of luxury that not a lot of us will have. And like you say, to, to smell the pages, to read those articles, you know, reading in a way is a luxury because we all say we're too busy all the time. Of course, we're not, but <laughs> that's what we tell ourselves. So there's a lot of other things about Vogue that would have made it luxurious if they continued pursuing that avenue. I also think that a lot of people definitely before, probably less so now, but saw Vogue as collectible, you know, they keep Vogue. And you can play into that aspect. People still read books. Everybody said that print books were going to die. But of course they won't because, it's like you say, it's the touch, it's the smell, it's the fact of holding something. Everybody assumes that now we want things digital because it's convenient, but that doesn't fulfill every need we have as people. Um, just because we can talk on the phone doesn't mean we don't want to touch someone. And you also get, I read a really interesting article once about how people get, 
bored of the sensation of being on a screen and that there was a huge kind of spike in people doing crafts and stuff like that because people wanted to touch something that wasn't just a smooth surface of plastic or glass. And I thought that was really fascinating. You know, it's true. You want to peel a vegetable. You want to sand a table (laughs) because, you know, as people that is not, we weren't made to live this digital life. It's not only relatively new, but in a way it's almost obscene to what we are as creatures. It it says a lot about the popularity of shows like The Repair Shop, um, which is, you know, the the point you're making there is that there is a fascination with craft. Um, I I genuinely do believe that if, you know, if I had my time over again, I would learn a craft. You know, I I wouldn't, you know, words, what's that? Why would I... (laughs) Why would I be a writer? That's ridiculous. And you can put words on a page mark and then it counts. <laughs> then it counts. Yes, as long as it's printed. That's very true. <laughs> Chapter three, the process. As I mentioned at the start, I was honoured to play a small role in helping Nina Sophia get her new book off the ground. An openness to accepting critique is what can make or break a project. It doesn't matter if it's your first time round or your 100th. Nothing is ever perfect. Nothing you write will ever be complete, even once it's published. So feedback is essential. But not everyone can take feedback like that. But Nina did, and now she's a bestseller. Maybe I do know something after all. Anyway, the main takeaway here is that even for a journalist like Nina Sophia, the editor of Londoner magazine, the writing process was still tough. I would say that I have been on this journey for too long, <laughs> but also, <laughs> but almost, you know, it almost took longer to, because it's my first book and I didn't have much experience in the publishing industry, the getting the agent, getting the publisher, all of that stuff, I would say actually took longer than the research and the writing. When I get down to it, I can write really fast and work very hard I just don't necessarily always want to work that way (laughs) but sometimes you have to um the research was almost kind of by assimilation because I was interested and I would constantly be reading sort of stories adjacent to this or fashion histories and I found myself like over the period of at least four years accumulating a lot of what back then before this book was essentially useless knowledge about Vogue editors. So when I came to writing it, I did know where to go to look for stuff. Um, So I didn't feel like I was starting from scratch. You said you learned a lot about the the publishing industry and and how how it works. We all, I certainly feel that when I look back at a time before I, I knew what I know now. It, it, you feel incredibly naive about, you know, and I, I guess if you knew what it was actually like, you'd never really go into it because this stuff is is really hard. Just what's that journey been like in terms of your exploration of the industry? Because I think the audience of, of writers would be fascinated. Some have, have been published, you know, many, many times over. Some are, are, on, are on this journey just as, as you've been on. What was it like? learning about this huge industry it's intimidating isn't it we've spoken about it quite a lot because I always come to you with my publishing woes um (laughs) and uh you're kind of very instrumental in directing me to the right place but that's you know it's it's a lot like swimming in the dark isn't it I I kind of don't know 
it's difficult to think like what it's like for people starting any career but I think in a lot of cases there's a clear path publishing is just like deciding to go swimming at night um (laughs) you don't really it's really hard to get a grasp on it I think one of the key things is that I knew I wanted to do this book and I wrote a proposal for it which is what you do for nonfiction. And I was quite pleased with this proposal and I wasn't getting any response from any agents. I'd been sending it out a lot and um, you kind of don't know why you're not getting the response. You assume it's a rubbish idea or the proposal isn't any good or, you know, you blame yourself. You think it's you, but the reality was like when you looked at it and your agents, it's, you, you need somebody to tell you what's wrong with it. And what was wrong with it was that, you know, the format wasn't right and who's going to tell you that essentially people don't have time to tell you that and you can't resent it either because people are busy and a lot of people want to write so agents are probably overwhelmed I know that sometimes just as an editor of a magazine I get overwhelmed with submissions you know I can't imagine what it's like for them so you know it's difficult to get feedback and those kind of nitty-gritty ins and outs they're hard to get a grasp of it's tough it is and it's also I was reflecting on this yesterday actually talking to a friend about it and I said it's not you know I do I do feel the responsibility of giving feedback at times because it's often not an easy thing to say you know I think I think I I I think my words to you were along the lines of as long as you're prepared to change every aspect of this (laughs) I'm sure you know know, in all all seriousness as you know with your editor's hat on the editor of London magazine right you you know about this process you know what it's like to give feedback so there was no I I didn't really have a problem you know telling you about it I think the issue is not necessarily what the feedback is and and what the issue with the product is it's then okay that's a significant undertaking to then take that to completely rework it to redesign it and to do it when you did that were you surprised by the reaction that you got? Because the reaction was then completely different, wasn't it? It was completely different. And it was really startling because I had kind of thought, well, you know, this isn't really a goer, but here I am still plodding away because if I don't, I'll hate myself. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you're right. After I changed everything about it, as you told me to. (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, I'm not. It's been published. I'm not sorry. Be sorry. It worked, didn't it? Um, (laughs) then I immediately got a lot of responses from agents. And I was kind of, yeah, um, I felt gratified, but also a bit annoyed because I thought, oh, for God's sake, if only I thought of doing it that way first. <laughs> but that's that's the case. It's really just how tenacious can you be? Um, can you afford to be without breaking your own heart, really? Because the other thing about doing that kind of thing is that you're doing a lot of work not not just for free, but kind of without ever knowing that it will ever land. And I think, you know, writing is personal and people definitely feel exposed by putting their writing out there and so on. And I, I think it gets to people when they don't have response to what they want to publish. Um, I know that with Editing Londoner, I have had cases where writers are very upset about changes in their work and so on. And I understand that, you know, so you, you can't get upset about it, really. It's the industry isn't personal. I've been asked on a number of occasions to read and provide feedback and have on occasion declined because I don't feel that the writer is ready to receive what I would consider to be a professional um, set of notes about the work. And 
that really is the job. I think more than the writing, more than the, the, the swimming in the dark, it's the ability to navigate the space and to leave ego at the door and to understand that the process when done well is designed to make the product as good as it can be, which really, given that it's got your name written on it, plays into your best interests anyway. Absolutely. However, it's it's often really difficult for people, for writers to understand that feedback is well-intentioned because we would all like to think that the last thing we wrote is the best thing anyone's ever written. And that clearly <laughs> isn't the case. You must have learned a lot about your own levels of resilience through this, Nina. Is that right? I guess so. But I think because I saw no end to it. <laughs> I kind of didn't think, in a way it was good because I was just thinking of every milestone. So when I wrote the proposal, I was just thinking about getting the agent. When I got the agent, I was just thinking about getting the publisher. I sort of didn't think about it and like the whole, the project and all of its magnitude as it were. And I remember very distinctly when kind of my last set of notes for the manuscript was done, I was like, oh my God, now we've got to move on to marketing. <laughs> Um, but by kind of thinking about it step by step, I kind of couldn't, that was for my own benefit, really. I knew that I would be intimidated if I thought about the project as a whole. Um, and I didn't have a great deal of confidence either that it would come off because it felt like such a long road that I kind of had that thing where you feel certain something's going to go wrong and it's never going to materialize. I have a lot of friends who are like, you were writing a book all this time. <laughs> We had no idea because I thought if I tell people, uh, then they'll ask me how it's going and maybe it will be scrapped. <laughs> um, I did learn a lot about how much I can write, though. It turns out a lot. I can write loads. <laughs> I didn't know that. Because usually if you write something small, like an article or a short story, I don't know about other people, but I make almost a point of procrastinating. I put it off as much as I can. It, takes me weeks to do 700 words <laughs> but with the book because of the tight deadlines sometimes I was working like 18 hours seven days a week for months and I survived that so that's interesting <laughs> what was it like and I, I love asking first time published writers this what was it like when you held it in your hands for the first time well <laughs> It was very difficult to believe, to be honest. I kind of, um, yeah, it just felt like such a long time coming. I it, I guess in my mind, I'd already gone over that point. And by the time the actual physical object was there, I was like, well, obviously, <laughs> here it is, <laughs> as it should have been all this time. Um, yeah, but it's pretty wild. So my publisher sent me a box of the books as they are wont to do. And they're sort of lying around the house for various reasons. And I get really surprised when I'm like, you know, going to the loo or want to change my top and there's a book with my name on it. <laughs> That's very surreal. Yeah, it's an, it, is, it is surreal. I think surreal is absolutely the right word because sometimes I look at it and go, That's my name. What, what's, the, what, <laughs> what's it doing there? What's it doing there? Yeah, exactly. Um, one, one final question, Nina, if, if I may. Vogue has a history of stepping up in difficult times. Um, the, this comes out, you know, repeatedly during dark times in the world that subscriptions go up because people 
want a release or they want to, you know, hold on to something. As we hopefully ease ourselves here in the UK out of lockdown, do you think that things like fashion and and the world that Vogue is leading, do you think that we will see, you know, the economists talk about this, don't they? They say you can always talk about the health of the economy by the length of a woman's skirt. Do you, do you are we on the cusp, do you think, of seeing an embrace of fashion just because we've been given some form of release i wonder whether we're all going to be wearing really wacky clothes just because we can right as opposed to wearing sweatpants around the house all day every day do you do you, do you see that coming later this year um you know what i would say i would say that that does usually happen and as as you say yeah a very reliable way in which economists judge the state of the world but uh, i think now um there's a big problem with judgment the pandemic has kind of not just brought out a lot of issues, but it's also allowed people to dwell on them. So there's a lot of vitriol, I think. Um, and the fashion industry is kind of going through a great reckoning. There's a lot of issues, sustainability, costs, production, treatment of workers, and so on. And I think in a way, we may have the desire to be really decadent in dress and so on. But I think people will will be extremely critical of it. And so that will repress repress a lot of people a little bit. That's my feeling. Mm, absolutely. Well, we wish you um, all the luck in the world. Glossy, the inside story of Vogue is out literally right now. It came out <laughs> yesterday. It will still be available when this as We wish you luck with that and for the magazine and for whatever the rest of 2021 has for you. Nina Sophia, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Couldn't have done it without you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Nina Sophia Morales for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Your audience doesn't know what they're missing out on. Nina Sophia had mountains of research and material, cutting it down so it was manageable. That was the hard bit. But it's what was left out that has made the book a success. Rather than remain an onlooker, Vogue became a part of the fashion industry, cementing itself as a valuable, trusted and immovable fixture of the institution. If you have the knowledge of a subject, if you've done the research and writing, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk and show yourself to be the thought leader that you are. An audience has to be ready to hear a message before it will cut through. If you tackled a subject years ago and gained no traction... Maybe you took it on at the wrong time. Perhaps it's time to try again. We all have our obsessions, and often they can seem completely pointless, filling our heads with useless information. But it turns out, if you have enough useless information on a subject, it starts to become quite useful. You might even be able to make a book out of it. We can have access to everything in the world online, but it's no replacement for physical, tangible things. A proper book is a great example, but perhaps you can think of new ways to offer your audience something beyond your online presence and words on a screen. Can you make your work collectible? And finally, if you're finding the publishing process daunting, try taking it one step at a time. Stop thinking purely about the end result and focus on enjoying the process. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let us know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode and do share any suggestions or requests for future guests and discussions. We'd love to hear from you. You can either give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. 
We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.